welcome to Talking Scared. I'm Neil McRobert, and though I may be your host, this week I'm definitely not the most familiar voice you'll hear. Our guest is Jonathan Sims, author of the brand new novel come anthology, 13 Stories, which is out from Galant tomorrow, the 26th of November. For the horror podcasting fans out there, however, Johnny may be a lot more famous as the host and archivist of the Magnus Archive. For those who don't know, the Magnus Archive is one of the biggest horror fiction podcasts out there, and it shares a lot of textual DNA with Johnny's novel. 13 Stories, and that's stories with an EY, not an EI, um, is a novel constructed from a tapestry of individual narratives, all set in and around a deeply haunted London tower block. And there's an overarching meta-narrative that links all the tales together. For newbies, it's a great intro to Johnny's inimitable mind. And for the fans of the Magnus Archives, it'll be like slipping into a warm bath. But the bath will be stained with the blood of the previous tenants, obviously. Let's take a ride to a dark corner of the capital. There's a building there with stories built into the walls. My advice, though, avoid the elevator. Take the stairs. Let's talk scared. Hi, Johnny, and thanks for joining us to talk scared. Hello. Uh, No, absolute pleasure to be here. Excellent. So, seeing as we've got an audience who, you know, presumably like horror and podcasts... Fingers crossed. Yeah, they, they may find your voice familiar. You are, after all... The, the voice behind the Magnus Archives, which is up there with the very best horror fiction podcasts out there. To be fair, should I talk more like this, make it a little bit more in-universe? No, uh, that's, sorry. Yeah, let's go for the ambiance. Yeah, yeah, that's fine. <laughs> First and foremost, we're here to talk about your new book, 13 Stories, which is out from Galance tomorrow, the 26th of November. So what can you tell us about it? So it is a... It's a very, very much a modern day haunted house. Um, it is an semi anthology um, book where each chapter takes the point of view and tells the story of uh, either a resident of this uh, luxury high rise, Banyan Court, or someone who works there. Each one uh, has their own unsettling supernatural question mark. I mean, supernatural exclamation mark. Um, experience that they all have a connection that leads to the final chapter, which is uh, a dinner party with a reclusive billionaire by the name of Tobias Fell, who, you know, spoiler alert, uh, for the first page of the book, uh, he dies. And it's very much like tying into that mystery of uh, what happened there and how do all these individual stories, all these individual hauntings tie together. So it's got a lot of. Uh, I've tried to touch on a lot of sort of more social, more more um, real topics in a lot of this, because uh, one of the aspects of Banyan Court is it is, uh, I don't know how much listeners know about London housing laws, but uh, new builds, um, new buildings are often required by law to have a certain number of uh, units, a certain number of flats or apartments uh, reserved for uh, lower income, like to be sold or rented at a lower price point. What this actually means, though, because of other housing laws being very lax, is you often get these buildings that have just like really cheap, poorly built and maintained uh, sections of them, specifically for those uh, lower income occupants. And Banyan Court is very much intended to be um, a, a very stark example of this. So you have almost uh, like you have this very much two sides of the building and so some of the stories uh, center on the people who are able to live in the very luxuriant, very very tasteful front of the building, and those who are, shall we say, less of means uh, and end up sort of shoved into the back of the building. Yeah, there is a really clear political undercurrent, as you say, to the to the book, particularly in the architecture of, of Banyan House. So you've, you've laid that out, like the reality of that, very well. Was that something that you felt was essential to the story, that social political commentary? Absolutely. It was actually, um, so the, the original idea for the book uh, was actually uh, brought to me by my editor, Rachel, who is absolutely amazing. And shout out to Rachel, if you're listening, she sort of came to me with the idea of this uh, building as a, 
as a haunted house. Uh, and she, she was, she very much pitched it to me as like, yeah, we're, we're, we really want this book and we're, we're thinking of it sort of anthology style, individual stories tying together into a single climax. And we're hoping to have quite an audio focus with like modern setting, but with some quite strong political and social themes. Do you think that's something you can do? And I was like, mm, yes, I, I, I think that's, I, th- I think that is something I can probably do. <laughs> Were you in any way, and this is a bit grim to be honest, but were you in any way sure. inspired or influenced by the, the Grenfell fire? Not directly. It was, I, I'm trying to remember exactly where I was in terms of... So just to jump in, sorry, for, for listeners abroad, the, the Grenfell fire was a disastrous fire in a, a residential tower block in, in, in central London that caused a whole furore politically. Yeah, uh, essentially very lax housing laws meant that a tower block was uh, clad in incredibly flammable material. Uh, so when there was a small fire, the entire flat, the entire tower block went up and a lot of people were rendered homeless, uh, a lot of people died, uh, and a lot of people in government made a lot of noises and did absolutely nothing to this day about it. It wasn't intended to be in any way about Grenfell. I'm, I'm I always try to be quite careful not to, I don't know, not to be exploitative in terms of uh, the conversations that a work has with uh, current events. Obviously, the reality of what Grenfell was and, and what it what it indicated about the landscape and how housing and how like life is treated by councils and the government in London, especially, but all over. Obviously, a lot of that sense is in um, 13 stories, uh, but I, I certainly wouldn't say that it is directly about or purposefully referencing Grenfell. No, and, that, and that's fine. And, and you mentioned not wanting to be exploitative. I think even if this was a kind of direct reference to that, it, it still wouldn't have felt exploitative because you write it in quite a compassionate way towards people, as you say, of lower means, because some of the, the, the rich people on the other side of this building are either quite abhorrent in their, in their wealth or quite guilty in their wealth, I suppose. I think it's very hard to reach a certain level of wealth without either ending up with, I mean, you know, not to be too dramatic, ending up with some blood on your hands or ending up somewhat detached from, from the, the world in which you live. My my partner Sasha was um, was reading the one of the press copies uh, and got to a, a line where one of the characters uh, says, "Oh, uh, I think I think it's uh, Yannick the the plumber said Yannick Yannick had always had uh, the secret opinion that all rich people were fundamentally a bit stupid." And Sasha looked over at me and was like, "This is this is what you think, isn't it?" And I was like, "To to a certain degree, because I like I feel that there's beyond a certain point of wealth, it becomes." almost impossible to relate to the world in the same way as 99% of the people do. And it's, it's that idea of like, there's only so disconnected you can be with the practical realities of the work. Because if you can, like if, if you can hire whoever you need to do whatever you need, then that in many ways, I don't know if infantilizes is quite the right word, but it leaves you helpless in a lot of in a lot of in a lot of ways it leaves you without a lot of the knowledge and experience that comes from being a proper part of the world and a lot of the the sympathies and, and empathies that come from from being part of the world at large as well i think that is something that i i certainly with one or two of the characters in the 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 posher side uh, of Banyan Court, uh, that's that's very much something I was I was channeling. Yeah, because it just occurred to me as you're saying that that these the characters in the in the affluent side of the building spend all their time calling people to sort out their problems, whether it is Yannick the plumber or whether it's Laura the estate agent. It's an endless kind of delegation of of their own lives almost. But one talking about that ninety nine percent versus the one percent, the sort the sort of the big bad of this story. Um, is is Tobias Fell, the billionaire who lives in the penthouse. Now, I've got to ask, was he inspired by any particular figure? Because 
I couldn't see him as anyone, anything else other than a kind of stand-in for Rupert Murdoch. <laughs> Interesting. To, to me, he was very much a uh, an amalgamation of he was an amalgamation of a bunch of a bunch of different sort of evil billionaires. He, he's you know within the story, he functions as a sort of a distillation of what I often see as like the essence of a billionaire, if that makes sense. Uh, politically speaking, uh, and like and thematically speaking, uh, but everyone who's read it and, and talked to me about it has like brought a different person that they def that they're like ah he's based on uh, he's based on Elon Musk isn't he or he's based on Jeff Bezos uh, Rupert Murdoch's not one I've I've heard before but like it's it's just as true I think as uh, any of the others uh, I, I think Tobias Fell is a little bit less because he, he's he's very much like a media darling rather than. Uh, a media mogul, but yeah, he, he's he's very much uh, uh, like you know, based on the face of whichever whichever billionaire um, you've most recently read about the excesses and crimes of. Yeah, you really don't pull your punches with his his evil doing at the end. I mean, I don't want to spoil anything. On on the one hand, like I I got have I got a bit worried occasionally because like. Rachel would often, uh, well, not often, but once or twice, uh, like we were having conversations, and and uh, one of the editors would be like, "Is this 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 is a, a bit far? Like this this one's a bit like cartoonishly evil." And I'd have to like pull up a bunch of news stories and be like, "It it, it happened last year, you know?" Um, <laughs> yeah, because there's a, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of awful stuff that goes on across the world in service of these huge corporations and often in service of these like individual people. And this, this book, it, it is quite a nice way to Banyan court provides quite a nice microcosm to talk about those macrocosmic problems. Do you know what I mean? It's, it's a really nice structure yeah. to go, okay, here's every level of, here's every strata of society and here's how kind of the shit slides downhill. I mean, I think it's one of the things that horror as a genre does so well uh, because it works, like, because the way it works in terms of metaphor and where every, so many horror tropes come from a now well-known language of um, metaphor and, like, how those fears interact, like, when I say sort of haunted house or, uh, you know, haunted tower block, I, I mean it quite literally like it is the supernatural elements are very much coded as ghosts. And while their manifestations are like quite different and um, they are not necessarily within the world of, um, within the, the world of the fiction of 13 stories, they are not necessarily like capital G ghosts. They are, Ghosts in the horror trope sense of everyone has a sense of a ghost as something that represents the past, the echoes, and often the echoes of crimes or misdeeds or those transgressions that are not properly reckoned with. And so, like, horror has this incredibly rich language in which you can talk about these issues both directly and through these metaphors, which I've found. Very freeing in a weird way. I should stress that it, this doesn't, it, it's better seen on the page. It is kind of a pun because it is, there are 13 stories in this book about a 13 story building. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll be 100% honest. I mm -hmm. cannot take full credit for that title. <laughs> uh, when Rachel was originally like pitching me the book idea, it, it was very much like, we were thinking, uh, we were thinking of calling it Thirteen Stories uh, with 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 an EYS. Uh, but if you can think of a better title, uh, that's fine. And I was like, yeah, no, I I don't, I don't think there is a better title than that. That is a fantastic title. It really is a great title. It's it's it's, it's fantastic. You've already alluded to this, um, but it's it's not a traditionally structured novel, nor is it an outright short story collection. How do you think of it? I would probably describe it as an anthological novel, uh, if that's not too wanky, because... Uh, oh, sorry, can I say wanky? No, that's fine. Yeah, brilliant. If it's not too wanky. Um, 
structurally, it is very much an anthology, but the individual stories cohere together, do link up into a greater whole. Um, and I think, like for instance, the I think the ending of any individual story, because it is so entirely focused on leading to that finale, um, if you were to take an individual chapter and just read it as a short story, I think you'd enjoy it a lot, but you'd probably be left a little bit unsatisfied by the ending because each ending is intended to feed into the final chapter rather than close off the individual story quite neatly. I, 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 fundamentally, I, I think if folks have, have listened to, to the Magnus Archive, certainly like past the first season, they're probably going to be relatively familiar with the sort of the sort of meeting point of short form and long form fiction, uh, which is, uh, you know, it's somewhere that I'm very comfortable working. Uh, and I think it's something that I'm probably going to try moving away from a little bit as I, uh, if, you know, as I write more books, I think I'm, I'd be very keen to experiment with different styles, including a much more like classical novel, but certainly for, for my first book, it's, it's very nice to be working in a space that I'm very comfortable with structurally. Like I feel like I have, I feel like I, I have a pretty decent command of that sort of taking the short stories and weaving them together into a wider picture um, at this stage. Yeah, I would say that you you have got a good command of that by now. <laughs> when you're writing an anthology novel like this, is it tricky to avoid repetition? So when you're doing it for the, for audio, for the, for the Magnus Archives, mm. obviously because you're delivering it vocally, it's kind of already free from the repetition of of form whereas yeah. when you're writing it do you feel the need to find different forms and structures for the stories Be- i mean one story for example is a video diary and another jumps from one perspective to the next like a script was that was that a conscious decision to shake things up or were you not bothered by by that issue yes and no i think horror as a genre is um a genre where you both need to be aware of where repetition is a danger and also where you don't actually need to worry about repetition because so much of horror, because so much of how horror works and is effective is rhythmic. Even in a full length horror novel, which is all the same story uh, start to finish, you will still find that it has a, a, a build up dread crescendo, fall away rhythm, even if within individual chapters or within sort of sequences of chapters, it, it maintains that, it maintains that rhythm in such a way that I've read quite a lot of full length horror novels where like you could theoretically just like chop it up into, into short stories almost like they wouldn't contextually make sense, but structurally they would work. And for for me, a lot of the playing with format is it's it's mainly because I really love playing with format. I, I remember years back. Sorry to 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 sound wanky again. I remember years back um, reading uh, or trying to read Moby Dick, uh, which is like thirty percent absolutely fascinating and about seventy percent very dull details about whales. But one thing that really compelled me is in that book it is constantly switching up the format. There'll be a chapter that is literally written out like a script because uh, there's a whole bunch of sailors chatting. There'll be one that's written like a diary entry. There'll be one that is literally uh, like an academic uh, an academic monograph uh, on how one butchers a whale. And it's something that, I don't know, that like playing with format and not feeling like you are bound to simple prose but that you can take some joy you can you can play with form and structure and see what works best uh for a specific story that's something that's, that's always appealed to me and I, I think i've done it I, I don't think i've done it a huge amount in 13 stories i think i think the 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 video diaries uh, format and the the final the final chapter of the two sort of big departures of, of structure but i think it's something i'd very much like to to play with more um, in future works as well yeah well, well in terms of as you mentioned thematic repetition um you certainly don't go in for that and you you certainly don't go in for repetition in terms of point of view 
And and one of the things that I am really impressed by, both in this book and with the Magnus Archives, um, is how you in, inhabit so many perspectives and points of view in in such a kind of short piece of of, of fiction. So to give the re- the the listeners an idea, in, in this book alone, you cover a freelance journalist, a media mogul, although she said he's not a mogul, a media darling, um, a security guard, a Polish plumber, an Hispanic art dealer, a Pakistani child, and the, there, there are others as well. You write about their lives and their, often their professions with a real degree of authenticity. Is that daunting? Yes, and it should be, because uh, if you are writing outside of your experience, you very much need to do the research you know like and i i think a a a sense of the a sense of the responsibility you are taking on when you are trying to write people who are not you especially uh, identities that are are not your own uh there is a, a huge responsibility to you know do the research to to talk with people to you know to to get sensitivity readers to to look through make sure that you know you're not falling into any um sort of harmful tropes or anything like that it's also important to know what what bits of a story aren't necessarily yours to tell and what parts you wouldn't be able to to say anything meaningful about writing a story set in london especially one that's so in many ways quintessentially about london uh, like 13 stories, I think you also have a responsibility to not shy away from the the fact that it is a, a hugely diverse and a, and a hugely... It's both hugely diverse, but that is not without its... But it is not equal. Like, the the, the way that identity is distributed and politically relevant and, you know, policed is not equal and so that's it's a, it's a it's always a tricky one um uh, as as a as a white writer to both make sure that you are not whitewashing your whitewashing your cast to make it to keep it in a space where you are comfortable writing whatever you want but at the same time you are not laying claim to or trying to speak for identities that are not your own did you have a favourite character to write about in the book, or or a favourite story that may not Ooh. be with your favourite character? It's tricky. I think it's it's a strange one. I often find there's maybe three or four characters that I will put a lot of myself into, uh, and like often it'll be like I'll put maybe this aspect uh, uh, like um i'm I'm very fond of uh violet who's from the first story because in I, I put into her a lot of my feelings and my love of urban life and and like very much the night uh like because i used to work on a night shift um and so like a lot of those feelings i, I sort of uh put into her i'm also quite keen on uh i'm also very keen on i mean obviously Yannick, I've put a lot of my opinions on rich people into, and <laughs> I, I'm also very fond of uh, Damien, who, who was, I, I mean, mainly I, I put I put into him my uh, fondness for uh, 70s prog rock, um, <laughs> which uh, which just, just endeared him to me no end. But yeah, I, I don't know if I have a, a, a favourite, favourite character. Everyone, I, I feel a bit guilty about how much everyone compliments me on Anna's chapter because uh, it's you know uh, it's a child with a with a creepy imaginary friend and I'm like that's yeah I mean I know I know that that is it is the best chapter but it, it's all, it was also the easiest one to write because like spooky children and spooky imaginary friends are just they're so easy to write <laughs> and I feel like I feel like I've kind of cheated with that one and just like gone for the absolute lowest hanging fruit but you know Sometimes people love it when you make a pie from low-hanging fruit. Indeed, there's a reason it's low-hanging. I mean, I mean yeah. my, my favourite chapter, aside from the the conclusion, which goes to incredibly grim extents, my favourite chapter um, is the story about the stain that just won't ah. go away and then begins to infect all of a man's life. Because 
that kind of anxiety about noticing something and then becoming all and en- all encompassingly obsessed by it is exactly how my mind works so so for example my next door neighbor's dog barks during the day and now that i'm aware of it it ruins my life yeah far disproportionately to the actual noise that the dog makes it's my obsession with it that becomes all encompassing so no i can completely understand that yeah the anxiety you evoke in that in that chapter really struck a chord with me i found it really quite quite um unsettling to read i i'm 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 actually really pleased to to hear that um specifically about that chapter because i think that is the chapter that went through the most i I don't want to say it was the chapter was the hardest to write I think it was certainly the one that went through the most uh, revisions and structural tweaks because it was it's such a simple idea but in practice a lot a lot of the initial drafts came across as kind of I I mean I always try to avoid uh, leaning on uh, like mental illness as a as a, a horror crutch and a lot of I think the early drafts of that chapter came across as like Oh, isn't OCD scary? It's like it's not. It's that which is very much not where it is intended to sit. Um, so I'm 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 very pleased to hear that uh, that that coming out of it, it it's it's reached a uh, that it's it's landed as as I as I'd hoped. Also, that one is one like the the part of the part of myself I put into that one is like like actually a relatively. A relatively raw one, actually, uh, and it's it's such a small thing. But uh, about a year ago, uh, one of our cats had uh, a real problem with uh, with you know pissing outside of the litter tray. I've got a new puppy. I feel your pain. Yeah, and there was a certain section of uh, of our very small, ter- like cramped terraced uh, terraced London house that just had this smell constantly, and just that feeling of the the feeling of like being alienated from your home the idea of this this place that is supposed to be like your your safety almost and just it being corrupted almost it is such a such such a horrible and, and but powerful feeling and that that's very much i think where i was looking for that chapter to lie yeah, you're right, because there's nothing worse than something which makes your home feel slightly less inhabitable. We had a thing, Yeah, this is just two men complaining about domestic problems now, but we had a Oh yeah, but you we know. had a thing last year where there were flies in the kitchen and, and every oh, time I went yeah. in, I, I killed like 12 and there were like 12 more. And something clearly died in the walls, you know, like how it mm. is. But it, it made me feel very, very unsettled about the entire building that I lived in because something yeah. had just been tweaked and was out of out of sync. It is it, it's a weirdly a weirdly discombobulating experience. I think stuff like that, however trivial it may be, just the con like the concept of some of your home is. And, and to be fair, this is something I think is laced all through Thirteen Stories because it is like with a couple of exceptions, um, all the characters live in Banyan Court, and so like a lot of it does engage and is intended to engage with this idea of of home and like what does what does home mean to you what what does it what does it mean when your when your home is measurably less important like less important to the world than someone else's like it's it's this weird interaction of like what is valued what is comfortable what is uh you know what is home uh, and I think that is that is a question that is also um, quite central to the book. You also have a real knack for crafting a kind of singular scary image. So the standout for me in 13 Stories is the sight of a human body crushed into a eight-inch diameter pipe, but still smiling. I mean, it's a really haunting image when you read it. And I wonder, do you... I often wonder this when I listen to the Magnus Archives as well. Do you often have an image that you then construct a story around, or does the image come later? Sometimes the first, sometimes the second. I am a big believer in... I, I often think of it as the, the Junji Ito 
um, style of horror. Because uh, uh, I don't know if you've ever read any of um, his uh, horror manga work, but generally each chapter, each story will be building up to this full page, just horrific image. Uh, and everything before that is is just sort of priming you and contextualizing and like building up your anticipation for this this full page horror splash. And I think that that's I think that while there's you know there's a lot there's a lot more involved in horror that is still quite a good way to imagine the the core structure of uh, of a horror story. You want that you want that climic you want that climactic image and to be fair that like it doesn't always have to be at the end at the actual climax of the story often if it occurs earlier you can deal with the the echoes of it the the, the ripples of that you know if you have the, the the strongest horrific image about a third of the way through then the last two thirds are going to be colored by it um and you can really sort of engage with the fallout of that standalone image. And so sometimes I will, when I'm coming to a story, I will have that image very, very quickly. Uh, and um, the story will be, yeah, will be sort of built around that. Other times uh, I'll know the sort of, I'll know broadly the theme of the story and I'll sort of start writing. And at some point I'll, as I'm thinking through how whatever the the horror is manifesting um uh, sometimes it'll it'll just come sometimes i i will you know go for a walk and and have a think about well what's the what's just the grimmest way that this could manifest and so like i think that specific standout um imagery is very crucial to how i write horror but it it comes at different points in the process depending on what's being written but you do, I mean, some of them are really quite, quite grand green old, like some of the images you come up with. I mean, I've, I've got like, I, I, I think it, it's because my, my sort of my three big influences, are like I feel at all times are like the very sort of the very reserved uh, and very sort of dignified uh, ghost stories of M.R. James, plus the, plus the, the sort of, immediate like what's the word uh with the immediateness and kind of um uh, urban legend quality of online creepypasta mixed in with a just a real love of like clive barker john carpenter just proper body horror like i i i'm i'm not i'm not necessarily one for straight up gore but i love like I love body horror uh, in, in yeah, that. you're very good at an image that is wrong. You know, it's yeah. wrong with a capital W. That's 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 the one. And also, like, and to be fair, I say, uh, oh yeah, the sort of you know stately and reserved ghost stories of of M. R. James. But like, I was rereading some of his stuff recently, and like, there's actually quite a lot of that in there. It's just often implied. Like he won't he he, he won't say, oh, and the head was reversed and the mouth had been dragged down to his sternum. He'll be like, well, everyone involved at the inquest fainted when they viewed the body and the verdict <laughs> was visitation by God. And it's just like, okay, well, you haven't actually described the corpse, but I'm pretty like, you've made it pretty clear that it's, it's all sorts of messed up. Yeah. Well, I'd also, I always think in in Mr. James because everyone thinks of him as this, as you say, this reserved, genteel writer. But I think Mr. James is the the only person I know who's ever put a jump scare in a ghost story on the page. Because in Canon, I think it's Canon Albrecht's scrapbook. There's mm. a, a bit where the, the protagonist is reading a book and he sees something move out the corner of his eye, and he thinks it's a gigantic spider. Yeah. And it's actually this imp's hand, and I think it's the creepiest sudden reveal yeah like, i think i would potentially argue that uh some of house of leaves oh you're talking my language now this book gets mentioned every week by uh, me i call barrett into conversation week yeah in week. It, it's because i mean because it's brilliant and crucially there isn't really any other horror media like it which very much means that like 
if you want to if you want to talk about something like related to House of Leaves, then you're talking about House of Leaves. So I can 100 percent see it coming up a lot. Uh, but yeah, like I, I think I think the only other examples I've seen like that tend to be, well, I mean, House of Leaves because it leans so hard on this sort of typographical weirdness. It's able to use its format to like, yeah, mimic certain certain um, certain things which usually you you can't get in prose. Yeah, it can alarm you with the way it looks, can't it? Have you ever read Daniel Auerbach's Pen Pal? I haven't read it in its book form. I, I'm I'm very familiar with it in its uh, in its old creepypasta format. Um, so I I very familiar with it, though I don't know how it changed in its uh, book form publication, if at all. Because I've only read it in its in its book form, um, but I I see a lot of of that in what you're talking about as well in that that juncture of mr james and creepypasta and clive barker and stuff that feels like that sweet spot i wonder if you'd if you'd read it across all of your work one of the things that i find really striking is the way you create a really distinctive approach to the supernatural so you you in my opinion you rarely resolve the absolute logic of what is going on often you seem to build a scenario and then you do give an ending very rarely a resolution i mean for a start would you agree with that and and if so why does that kind of storytelling appeal to you uh i think i would agree with that uh, and i think there's a a couple of um i think there's a couple of reasons uh i think on a on a sort of almost mythos level uh i'm always very reluctant to give hard and fast rules in terms of how the supernatural works, how uh, this ghost works, how this monster works. Because once you give rules, I'm also quite reluctant, I think, to give proper names, because I think rules and names are two things that people can very easily use to contain and control and like direct their unease. I think it's, it's a... Uh, often I, I I play a lot of um, tabletop role playing games, and one thing that is always very clear is that when a player knows the like the written rules of how X or Y monster works, then the actual the fear of that monster fades. Like you might be intimidated about it because you're like, oh god, I I know how tough this thing is, but there isn't that. There's not that dread in quite the same way, and also I think that it can often it can often lead to you tying yourself in storytelling knots because you're so concerned with trying to make sure that all the rules that you have set out are adhered to uh, that either you can end up like twisting your story into weird patterns or you have to ignore a rule at some point, which means that a lot of fans will be like. Uh, what about what about this? Um, and also, fundamentally, I to me the supernatural is a realm of emotion rather than intellect. And so, like, I always think of it, and I'm always drawn to uh, painting it in the in, in sort of fairy tale colors. I, I suppose you know, in in a, in a fairy tale, somebody can sort of literally lose their heart and have it replaced by a snowball. And it's like, well, what's the like? What are, what are the rules there? And it's like, well, there aren't there aren't really rules. It just feels right, you know. It's the 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 logic is thematic rather than logical, I guess. Uh, and so I think that's very much the space I I like to um, operate in when it comes to conceiving of the supernatural and designing supernatural ecosystems. I suppose you'd call them in terms of. Uh, like lack of resolution to a story, I think. Uh, well, no, I I I try. I always try to give resolution, but in terms of lack of uh, explanation to a story, I think it is very important for uh, an audience to be able to follow why something happened. I think that, especially in horror, the less they entirely understand how it happened often the better the story lands. 
you know, it's it's very important that you know you understand why this or that character was targeted by a ghost. It's very important that you understand, you know, why this person was uh, driven to dedicate their life to hunting down vampires or, or, or whatever. But I often the exact mechanics of how or why things happened. Again, they it it blunts things. I find often it makes things too neat, and I often find that the best horror has a lot of raggedy edges, uh, a lot of ambiguity and sort of mess almost in the corners. That does bring us to, um, we, we've flirted with it all the way through this, and for a lot of people, this will be the reason that they're, they're listening. The Magnus Archives. So yes. for anyone out there who, for some reason, listens to podcasts but doesn't know about this, um, it's it's a long-running audio drama. I believe, I read that you have 2.5 million downloads per month. Oh, goodness. Uh, something like that. Like, uh, a, a lot. Sounds ludicrous to somebody with a like a fledgling little show like that. I mean, it is ludicrous. Every, every like I, what I know is that every time Alex tells me how many downloads we have, I go, "That's not right. That can't be right." So you play the head archivist of the institute. Yep, who is foolishly named after myself. Yes, which is ah, uh, you know how you're like, what's what's, what's one creative decision you regret? <laughs> right? Yeah, there there it is. <laughs> appending my name to this yeah mm-hmm. so i mean and the, the premise of the show is that you are tasked with sifting through kind of all transcripts of uncanny supernatural events through through as it turns out quite a few hundred years so obviously i'm a big fan I, although i'm not gonna admit i'm only just into the second season because i have a lot of podcasts that i listen to that's all right there's a lot to come good yeah i've seen that without obviously asking you to recount your entire life story can you give me some background to how that show came about? So I met Alex, uh, who is the director and runs uh, Rusty Quill, the, the production company. Uh, I was performing with a sort of a storytelling sci-fi cabaret thing um, I, I was a part of called The Mechanisms, and Alex came to one of our shows and, and really enjoyed it. And he contacted us a little while after and said, hey, I'm setting up uh, this podcast production studio do, do, do you guys want to, to do anything with us and we discussed it amongst ourselves and and we're like well it takes us about a year to write eight songs so we probably can't really do anything on a production schedule but i met up with alex a, a few times and, and i pitched him uh at the time i was working night shift and it was, it was a weird job and I, very very silent all the time and so i was just devouring this was right in the sort of the start of horror podcasting. So Pseudopod had been around uh, a year or Mm -hmm. two. No Sleep Podcast was just rolling up, and I'd found a huge old archive of radio shows, things like uh, Nightfall and Lights Out and all this sort of stuff. So I was very... And at the time, I was also getting... uh, I'd fallen quite hard into like online creepypasta uh, as a format. So uh, I, I pitched him this show... Oh, also, Knife Point Horror had just started up, and I was really enjoying mm-hmm. that. Knife Point Horror was quite a direct uh, influence in some ways because I noticed there were certain like names that would recur between episodes, certain like texts, and I was fascinated with the idea of doing an anthology show that had these stories going on in the background. That if you were like paying attention and like put the pins together, you could actually build up these much wider stories, build up this this picture of this much wider world. But I initially pictured it to Alex uh, pretty much just as a just as a as an anthology show and this is why the protagonist has my name because I was like and I'll I can take the, the the role of the archivist you know very much sort of you know, crypt keeper style I guess hosting and, and narrator but uh, as it went on I was like well we, we actually we need a meta plot like this sort of thing works a lot better if it's actually all building towards something uh, and so we sat down and like we, we sort of hashed out this grand huge meta plot which is like twisted and turned and taken all sorts of forms as it's actually ent- as it actually entered production but uh but yeah like it, it was very much sort of uh hammered out in a coffee shop in edinburgh so something i've always wanted to ask um that fascinates me is how you generate so much content so quickly and regularly so the the, the show is 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 weekly and so it's a full short story every week, but with really original ideas. 
plus tied into this this meta plot that you mentioned. Now, I write short stories myself, but I can't get my head around that level of creative agility. How how do you do it? Well, for a start, I would potentially... I think I'd slightly push back on the idea of every episode being original in, in the sense of, like, this idea has not been done before. A lot of them are very much my take on classic horror tropes. At the same way that you could say, oh, this band covered uh, Highway to the Danger Zone, and you're like, oh, yeah, I'd really like to hear what like this band's particular take on... I don't know why I reached for that song, but yeah. And in the same way, like often it, it's not me being like, oh, I shall write this story that I conceived of from whole cloth. It's like... Okay, so if I'm taking if I take the idea of a vampire, how how would I do like a vampire within this world? Uh, and I think a lot of the stories are very much me taking classic horror tropes or, you know, just wholesale stealing from a, a horror movie I've watched um and like spending the time rather than coming up with the initial idea, spending that time thinking about what interesting or what interesting thing I could do with it, or what I could do with it that, that feels like my sort of horror. I think you're doing a great service there, I really do, because well, I, I'm just thinking now about, about the vampire story, for example, in the in the Magnus Archives, in series one, with the, the homeless dude who is, um, has spent his life hunting for vampires. And I think it's in many ways harder to find new space in a well-tread trope than it is to... Kind of, well, maybe not harder than to work with a new monster, but in many ways as hard. And it never feels like that show is just treading water. On the one hand, that's true. On the other hand, the fundamental concept of a homeless vampire hunter is one I stole from a very short piece of flash fiction right at the start of a World of Darkness source book. Um, okay, then I, w- I will sit down. <laughs> but obviously it's not plagiarised. Like the actual, the actual story is entirely different. The character is, is very different. But this is what I mean by, like, these aren't just ideas that I am plucking out of nothingness. A lot of it is intended to be in conversation with other works of horror and uh, a lot of these horror tropes that, that, are, that are more broadly out there. Also, I th- there is a certain mindset, I think, that you can practice that is just a way of looking at the world through a sort of, through horror glasses, I guess. You know, just taking a walk at night and, like, seeing how the, like, looking at a, at a, a block of flats and seeing how the the lights of a few windows affect the tableau and just kind of letting your imagination just tick over and like seeing what, what horrors you can conceive of within this tableau. Is it a, like a, a bloodstained human figure in one of the windows for a second, then the light turns off. Is it something that categorically can't move like that gradually moving its way up the wall? Is it the entire building just, not being there when you blink again. And from each of these, um, and this goes back to what we were saying earlier about this sort of central image. Once you have in your mind, this idea of like what sinister aspect of what you're seeing of the world that you are walking through, you could, uh, pull on what, what thread you've got. You can just see where it goes. You can, you can follow it and, and build it into something a lot, a lot grander. And it has become quite grand. I mean, to date, there are 186 episodes. Along the way, you've built a really complex web of myth and lore. Is it hard keeping those threads kind of in order? And Oh, yeah, absolutely. I believe you are now heading for some kind of climax. Is, is that right? Yes, we, it's, um, the, whole, the whole story is, uh, it, was init- it was right from the beginning intended to be five seasons, a total of 200 episodes. So we're very much in the uh, in the the, the finale uh, the finale run at the moment, but uh, the answer is yes. It's it's very difficult keeping it all in my head, as the many fans have pointed out. The times I've just completely forgotten I've used a name and used it again, or just some some of the dates uh, dates are dates are hard. Uh, I would say I'll, I'll be honest. Since about season three, my life has been absolutely saved by an incredibly detailed and very well maintained fan wiki. 
Um, yeah, because one of the things that you do in the show is once you start to cross-reference episodes, you quite frustratingly, he says with love, <laughs> reference the episode not as, oh, the one about the vampire. You will use the, the in-universe reference number of the file that i'll be honest that's that's more in the early series uh in the later series i think i learned my lesson and started started giving a bit more a bit more in terms of context right because I'm, I'm just sitting there going hang on what i've heard that name before but but what so yeah because the ones i mean just to tell you that my favorite episodes so far are the piper schwarzwald and the boltswain's call i think those three are incredible but it took me is it, is it, am I right that there's a, there's a link, for example, between Schwarzwald and the Piper? And I was just, I think so. I, I, I I'll, I'll, I'll be honest. Uh, like, I, I tend to think of it in terms of character stories and like concept stories. I like, I'm, I'm less good. This is one of the things I use the wiki for specifically is like, I'm less good at remembering which, like, exactly what happens in any given episode. So generally, like, if I'm writing a, a later part of a story, I'll find myself going back and refreshing myself on the exact details of the earlier stories within that sort of cycle, uh, effectively. Largely so I don't end up uh, throwing in a detail that completely contradicts something I set up earlier. But yeah, there, there's there's definitely like threads running through all of that. Well, suffice to say, it, it's an incredible piece of work. Are you happy with the ending you're building towards? I think so. I think so. It's. I mean, it, that's that's such a question. You know, you 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 build a series for five odd years pushing through like a couple of instances of burnout and uh, like a pandemic and it it just builds up such a head of steam to mix my metaphors it builds up such a head of steam that you've just got to try and land it right <laughs> and like i think that's that's a lot of what i've been thinking of in terms of the ending is less like this is the perfect ending to my masterwork and more like okay there's a lot there's a lot here and if i can get us down in one piece and we can all walk away from this ending, broadly speaking, satisfied. I'm happy. Just to land it at all after after so many so many hours of content is. Um, <laughs> I, I've been thinking all the way through. Please don't let this just fade out without a conclusion. It won't. It won't. I would say the danger is people say, "Ugh, that was a rubbish ending." Not it just fading away. I don't think it's going to be a rubbish ending. Just just to be clear, but I hope not at least. But it's certainly it's certainly not just going to stop. Right. Well. That seems a good place to stop this interview, at least. But before I do, I have four questions that I throw at each of my guests, if you wouldn't mind answering them. Absolutely. As I always say, I want things that come off the top of your head, your first gut reaction. Sure, sure, sure. So question one, normally I get a bit reticent asking this about people who are not quite as emphatically fans of horror as you, but with you, I think it'll be fine. What's your? What was your gateway to horror? My gateway to horror... <laughs> Uh, was Sonic the Hedgehog in Castle Robotnik, uh, which was a novel, a UK Sonic the Hedgehog novel I read when I must have been five or six. Uh, and uh, it's very much playing on like horror tropes. But the what I remember is that all of Sonic's uh, like animal friends, they are turned into versions. Like some of them are just like, oh, here's, here's the penguin as a vampire. You know, here's a, a werewolf. Uh, but some of them were like referencing movies that were, for instance, the the rabbit Johnny Lightfoot. They they turn him into Leatherface basically. And there's a there's a, a pig which is a Hellraiser uh, reference. And I remember being very disquieted by a lot of it, but also quite compelled. After that, I, I transitioned very seamlessly into Goosebumps. Right, and that's where the real education started. Absolutely. I ask a lot. I ask everyone that question. I guarantee no one else will ever answer. <laughs> on the hedgehog, I, it will. It will. That will never happen. Normally, it's. I'm. I'm normally pleased with any answer that's not Stephen King. So that one. I mean, he's like he's very good. Like he's he's you know he's a lot of people's gateway for a reason. But yeah, well, I'm just happy with the that that's one for the the greatest hits. Real question two. If you could recommend one book to our listeners, what would it be and why? Not to be a bit basic on Maine, but Collected Works of M.R. James. He is, to my mind, the certainly the greatest English ghost story writer. Uh, I would probably say the greatest ghost story writer in the English language, though I haven't probably read quite wide enough to say that for sure. But like, he is, to my mind, 
both foundational and just still incredibly good and deeply creepy. Yeah, you don't get, get any argument from me on that one. Question three, if you had a piece of advice for a fledgling horror novelist starting out, what would it be? Think very critically about how you use tropes and what you find yourself uh, leaning on. And fundamentally, mentally ill people aren't scary, so stop it. Excellent. That, that can go on the T-shirt. And my last question, and I have a feeling you may give us a good answer to this one. What truly scares you? I, I mean, death, mainly. I, I think... A lot of things. I think it's actually very hard to write compelling horror about something that doesn't scare you at all. Uh, and I think one of the skills of writing horror is leaning into your own fear and in many ways playing this sort of almost block puzzle with a fear until you get it to slot into into your mind in just the right way. You're like, ah, oh, that's what's scary about it. Deep down, I think the thing I am most scared of is death, because it is Coming for all of us right now. <laughs> right. You know? Just that, just that dark, blank inevitability, uh, and the fact that everyone listening to this podcast ultimately will also die. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> you did ask, <laughs> Jonathan Sims. Thanks for talking scared. No problem at all. Thank you so much for having me. It's been an absolute joy. So that was a great interview. Having listened to the Magnus Archives for a while now, it was a real thrill to talk to the archivist himself. But also, you've got to love a man who, when asked to think of a a single song from the entire history of music, settles on Kenny Loggins' The Danger Zone. (laughs) 13 Stories is a really rewarding piece of work. It's fun and quick and ideal reading for a commute or before bed because the stories are all self-contained. But it also packs a real punch with its kind of social fabric, and there are some truly haunting images littered through it. It's a, it's a great read. One of the things I meant to say to Johnny, but, but didn't get the chance, is how much his book reminds me of Chuck Palahniuk's Haunted. So Chuck Palahniuk, Palahniuk, there are different ways to say his name, supposedly, is you know the author of Fight Club. And he, he wrote a book called Haunted, in the early 2000s, which takes a similar structure to Johnny's. Um, It's a a series of people telling their own individual stories while stuck together in a dilapidated theatre for reasons that I won't go into. It's a bit of a landmark text. Put it this way, there is a story that opens that collection which has reputedly made someone faint every time Chuck has read it out loud. Um, And I can verify that because I... I once taught a course on on black comedic writing to some high school kids, and I read that story, which is called Guts, um, and there were some queasy faces, and one or two people had to leave the room. Haunted is brilliant. If you liked 13 Stories, try it. If you liked Haunted, try 13 Stories. I also mentioned the book Pen Pal, and I mistakenly called the author Daniel. In fact, Pen Pal was written by Dathan Auerbach. It's a great name, Dathan, but it is easy to mistake for Daniel. Pen Pal began life as a piece of loosely connected creepypasta online uh, and it was then published in its book form. It, it ranks as one of the most disturbing books I've ever read. It may not be the greatest story ever told or the most illuminating prose, but in terms of sheer gut punch revelation, it, it really is worth seeking out. It's pure nightmare fuel. We also made repeated reference to M.R. James, and that's at the other end of the scale from things like Pen Pal or Polanyuk's Haunted. I wouldn't imagine that I'd need to introduce or recommend the great master himself to horror fans. But if you haven't read M.R. James, or if you've been put off by the idea of reading stories that are over 100 years old, then this is my clarion call for you to pick up one of the many versions of his collected tales. There's a reason James is still considered the greatest practitioner of the ghost story in the English language. He was a major influence for Lovecraft and pretty much everyone who came after. And as Johnny said, the stories are still very scary. My personal favourites are Canon Albrecht's scrapbook and The Ash Tree, and I'd love to hear what yours are as well. 
James is particularly relevant at this time of year as well as we as we lean in, lean into December. Ghost stories used to be a Christmas tradition in the UK. It's a tradition that's waned a little in recent decades and been replaced by the dazzle of TV and you know Christmas specials. But recently, I've noticed a resurgence. There are even shows around this time of year now where you can go and listen to ghost stories, often by Mr. James and sometimes delivered by a guy in character. Um, so join the party, pick up one of his ghost stories and, and put some cosy chills back into the festive season. As ever, I'm so pleased that you are listening and supporting the show. I'm blown away by the response I've had. Uh, we're approaching a thousand downloads, which is a, a landmark. Again, you can really help by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or iTunes or anywhere else that you care to leave it. I ask every week, and, and though I know you all have busy lives, if you do like the show and what I'm doing, then that's the best way of kind of showing your appreciation. If you want to reach out and talk to me personally, you can find me on Twitter at TalkScaredPod or on Instagram at TalkingScaredPod. You can email me directly at TalkingScaredPod at gmail.com. Listener emails have dried up a little, and I do so love to receive them. So yeah, drop me a line. But until next week, pay attention to your architecture. Avoid that shadow in the stairwell. Lock your doors. Read good books. And remember, it's good to be scared. (laughs) 